the trees are coming into leaf, like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still, the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, 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 the trees. Afresh, 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 they seem to say. A reading life, a writing life. With writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. The trees, the trees. Philip Larkin. I do think that poem, the more you speak it out, the deeper you get into the wisdom, which is why I had to read it again and again. It's almost as though I'm travelling into the centre of the poem. Those rings of grain. I'm getting inside those rings of age and wisdom of standing around watching the rest of us going about our silly business. I think this as I look outside my window right now, my round porthole, which I've just opened, and I can see the horse chestnut tree is filling out nicely on this May morning. There's still one tree looking rather nude and undressed, not the least bit embarrassed, however. Its leaves are not yet ready to be seen, but the horse chestnut tree is becoming very flush and full. I've always loved the shape, that conical shape of the horse chestnut tree. There was one at the bottom of our garden, the conquer tree, we called it. I used to like to draw that shape. I associate it with play with play. And indeed my little neighbour next door, he said to me before he went away, he's gone on holiday for a few weeks, he said to me, Sally have you seen the horse chestnut tree is out? He's learning his trees. We should all learn our trees. Busily penetrating my little boat, trying very hard to find a way to stay. They wish to nest. They're looking out for some nice, soft, felt hats to live in. Away, away, away! My little neighbour is very disconcerted that the wasps are coming in to play. They've been trying to find a place 
to stay. So I've put my hats away and now they are trying to find a nest behind my chimney. So every morning I come and visit my chimney and I tap tap hard to make sure those wasps are not in hiding. And yesterday we had quite a performance. There's a tiny little gap at the top of my door. Just here, a little square which I was trying furiously last night to cover with paper and cardboard to stop those wicked wasps coming in. And now I look more closely, I see, in fact, there's some debris or a spider or two that has managed to find a little gap to hide in, in this draft space that runs down the middle of my door. My door is a rather flimsy. I really ought to make it a little more sturdy. And see, there's a little section up here, almost like a tiny micro habitat where insects have found a way to live and that's where my wasps are heading for daily. They haven't visited me yet today. I think the stern telling off I gave them yesterday may have made them think twice. There's my piece of cardboard on the ground which was my effort to keep them out. Pull up the drawbridge against the wasps. Pull up the drawbridge against the wasps. They're very persistent. It's the queen wasp, the lady wasp, the girl wasp, the queen. I think perhaps she thinks it's her coronation, not the king's. King Charles, of course, was coronated this weekend. I think the wasps have something to say about that. They've been very, very busy. So I'm now looking on the outside of my boat my roof, just in case, just in case a, whisk, a wicked wasp has got inside. Let me climb out and see. No wasps, no wasps, no wasps. And there are the geese honking away. The goslings have been born recently and the geese have become very protective of their young. There has been much hissing of geese. Much hissing and honking. The little goslings have learned to swim. So I'm walking down the boardwalk. Ooh, there's a bird flapping away, Mr. Pigeon. Flap, 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 flap. Yes, I'm doing an inspection beautiful May morning, very soft air. The birds are very busy chirruping away. The geese are honking, that's their job. And so far I see no wasps. Perhaps the rain has kept them away. March, march, march up the boardwalk we go. Oh and look, the apple blossom is out. Beautiful apple blossom. I do like the way trees arrange themselves into attractive shapes for us. It's very generous of them. Here's the horse chestnut tree. She's coming on nicely. That lovely, almost pine cone shape that she has. Gosh, the birds are loud. 
must be their chorus time they're practicing the bird choir is out today the bird choir is singing loudly I should fill up my bird bowl with some seed and be more generous very ungenerous feeder of birds I've become yes job today fill up bird bowl with seed I did learn the other day that Mr. Voley, as we call him, the, the water vole, apparently he's been climbing up this tree, this hawthorn tree opposite my boat. I had no idea that voles, water voles, could climb trees. Absolutely none. So I wouldn't be surprised if he got wind of the bird seed bowl being filled up, that he too would be quite interested in climbing up. Oh, I've managed to spray myself with lots of water from the leaves hawthorn leaves and stems are very sharp indeed very sharp there i'm just doing some pruning a little bit of pruning of the hawthorn sharp daggers pointing like knives almost like rose thorns the hawthorn i suppose it probably is related perhaps to the wild rose, I don't know, but it has the same kind of claws, sharp claws. I am fond of the hawthorn, however. So let's just prune a little bit. Prune away. Gets very, very bushy very quickly. Very bosky, I love that word, bosky. Bushy, green and bushy. Trees, they would take over if they could and perhaps we should let them. My neighbour tells me that this tree, the willow, which is the nearest to my boat, again, I'm pruning it, we should wait a little longer to cut back some of its branches because we want it to lean towards our side of the riverbank and not into the river because then it will be more difficult for any river traveller to pass by. So yes, trees, they become quite unruly quite quickly. One has to keep on top of them and do some pruning. So I think it might be time for a morning cuppa. Back inside I go to put on the kettle. has been made. Phew. At least three cups of tea must have been drunk before the morning can properly begin. This is my third cup of large tea. I do have to say I think we may have killed off the wasps. I did curse them an awful lot yesterday. I think the cursing of the wasps may have left to, may have led to the demise of the wasps. Yes, that's what I'm going to believe anyway. And if I see them again, if they recur, I shall 
simply believe that they are the ghosts of the dead wasps. And in fact, all I'm seeing is an apparition, just like in Hamlet. Yes, that's what I'll tell myself. I'll tell myself that those are the ghosts of the dead wasps that have been killed coming back to haunt me and I should not speak to them as Hamlet does. I should not pay attention to the ghost. No, no, no. Pay no attention to the ghost. listening to the chirping. The birds are so loud this morning. Chirrup, chirrup, chirrup. Birds keep you very still once you start listening to them. Very still. So this morning I've been reading this wonderful autobiographical book by John Fowles. John Fowles. And it's simply called The Tree. I've been thinking a lot about trees. Finishing up my last book, The Green Lady. I write in that book, Trees Mark Place. Indeed they do. As a child I learned where things were by where trees were and I learned trees first, I think, before I learned the place. The tree was the place. And indeed that's what John Fowles says here in the opening of his autobiographical The Tree. The first trees I knew well were the apples and pears in the garden of my childhood home. This may sound rural and bucolic, but it was not for the house was a semi-detached in a 1920s suburb at the mouth of the Thames, some 40 miles from London. The back garden was tiny, less than a tenth of an acre, but my father had crammed one end and a side fence with gridiron espaliers and cordons. Even the minute lawn had five orchard apple trees kept manageable only by constant debranching and pruning. So he speaks of the size of the garden in that first paragraph, and I think that's why I'm drawn to it, because our back garden was tiny as well. He uses the word minute. I think of our back garden as being like a green postage stamp, where we used to play all sorts of games, trying to make it seem larger. Football which didn't go very well, smashed windows, shouting, football, not here. Mum would yell, not on your Nelly, not here. So we went outside to the wider space of green on the other side of the road, which was in fact called the green. But John Fowle seems to have had a similar sort of experience of smallness in his childhood garden. And he speaks of the fruit trees, and the names of the apples and the pears, which he says are rather like the names 
of wines. And then this. These trees had a far greater influence on our lives than I ever realised when I was young. I took them as my father presented them to the world as merely his hobby, an unexceptional or inevitable as his constant financial worries. But they were already more than trees. Their names and habits and characters on an emotional parity with those of family. I love that idea. So the trees are part of a family line, an alternative genealogy. In other words, emotionally speaking, they are akin to family. And I do understand that because as I listen to those words by John Fowles, I see in my mind's eye the conquer tree, as we called it, at the back of our tiny postage stamp of a garden. The horse chestnut tree is what it really was, with its wonderful conical shape, rather luxuriating in itself when it was full and fulsome. I loved that tree when it was full. It was like a grand archduke or duchess, someone very aristocratic with its lovely feathery, so it felt to me, wings, wings being the branches, laden with blossom. And I think of that tree as being an extra familial, a great archduke or a great aunt, very grand, bestowing all kinds of riches upon me. And John Fowle's experience of trees begins as the beginning of a separation from his father, whose fruit trees seem to annoy him, their categories, their taxonomies. And then John Fowles says something very riveting about time and trees. More and more, I secretly craved everything our own environment did not possess. Space, wildness, hills, woods. I think especially woodland. Real trees. Real trees. With one or two exceptions, the Essex marshlands, Arctic tundra, I have always loathed flat and treeless country. Time there seems to dominate. It ticks remorselessly like a clock. It ticks remorselessly like a clock. Landscapes without trees, John Fowle says, tick remorselessly like a clock. And at that point, I think of Virginia Woolf's novel, Orlando, where the poet Orlando, who is still at that point a man because he changes into a woman halfway through the novel, why not, if you can do it? If it's nicer, why not? Orlando, a very playful book, very playful with time. Orlando sitting under the oak tree, reading out his poems, is somehow also warping time. 
the novelist likes to warp time. I love warping time when I write. I love moving hither and thither, trying to tease my reader out of a traditional relationship to time, which is to say a forced and false relationship to time, which is clock time. I don't like clock time. Think of the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, always rushing around, bullied and harried and harassed by time. Not for me, I decided a long time ago. Not for me. But trees warp time, says John Fowles. It is almost like leaving land to go into water. Another medium, another dimension. When I was younger, this sensation was acute. Slinking into trees was always slinking into heaven. And that is precisely how I felt when I used to climb over the back wall so I could sit in the conquer tree. I felt as though somehow her green mantle, her green cloak would keep me safe. And I too, like John Fowles, was slinking into heaven. I associate trees with some of my first compositions in words. Some relationship between the roots of trees and entomology, the roots of words. That idea appears in several of my books already. Folkloric entomologies. I often make them up myself by a kind of free association in my mind, a kind of eddying or pulling of the tide around words as though words, as I see it, as I feel it, have a life force of their own. Words have an inherent vitalism, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. So it does. And images are like that. They burst open inside my mind and I have to follow them. That really is the beginning of writing. Trees, in some sense, are also a beginning. The trees are coming into leaf, like something almost being said. I think of the tree at the bottom of our garden, beyond the stone wall and the wooden gate that separated our strange, cult-like family from the rest of the world. The horse chestnut tree, whose conkers and acorns fluttered over the garden wall. And we ran to gather them as children. We fought over those conkers. They were our ammunition, our bullets, our hard bullets that we tossed at one another on pieces of string we whacked and hit one another with on the knuckles and 
we turned them harder and harder as we baked them in our gas oven. That tree was a marker of the beginning of the world beyond our house, beyond our strange gothic Victorian granite grey tower of a house by the sea. We spoke of that tree as though it held some kind of eternal mystery. An important mythic spot in my mind. And I know that tree, I see that tree as I close my eyes. I see its shape, I see its height, I see myself climbing up it. I see its proportions in relation to the wall and the gate. And I realise now, I regarded it as a kind of guardian figure, a sort of green lady, which is the title of my next book. And perhaps that was how I first understood nature as something protective and insulating, but also something that marked out place, boundaries but that also provided me and my brothers with a way of playing a game, conkers. Conkers, we ran to gather them every morning and hid them in our pockets and took them along with us to school and traded them like secrets. And later on, as I started to leave my house behind and find my way into the world via books. I also found my way to books through the trees. Another mythic spot in my imagination, that small triangle of green called Lobs Wood, which I misspell in my first book, Girl with Dove because somehow the word lob, L-O-B, was important in my mind, because you could lob something over a wall and thereby leave. So lobs wood, which marked the place in between my home and the library, was the beginning of leaving. And it was there that I sat on the ground underneath the trees and first began to really read. For hours and hours. And Fowl says something of this. Let me find it. We feel, or think we feel, nearest to a tree's essence, or that of its species, when it chances to stand, like us, in isolation. We feel, or think we feel, 
nearest to a tree's essence, or that of its species, when it chances to stand like us in isolation. But evolution did not intend trees to grow singly. Far more than ourselves, they are social creatures. And no more natural as isolated specimens than man is as a marooned sailor or a hermit. Their society in turn creates or supports other societies of plants, insects, birds, mammals, microorganisms, all of which we may choose to isolate and section off, but which remain no less the ideal entity or whole experience of the wood. The wood which I slipped and slid through as a child with my school shoes on, getting muddy, sitting on the ground, getting my bottom covered in mud as I slipped and slid around trying to find a seat from a tree trunk. And it's that seat and that trunk that I want to write about now, years on, years on. Because as I see it, as I remember it, as I feel it, trees were my first form of reading company. There's the rain falling heavily. There's nothing more lovely than rain falling on the canopy of trees. Just a small PS all of you overhearing me. I want to say this, that sometimes the words slip and slide around in my mouth and it's as though I'm walking through mud inside my mouth. You see my tongue and my teeth and the muscles around the edge of my jaw don't quite work as they used to and so when I say the word entomology which means the study of insect life I really mean etymology etymology e-t-y m o-l-o-g-y I stumble slightly on the T, but when I was speaking with you, I added an N, and it's as though the letters in the words which I spell out in my mind's eye are bubbling up to the surface, and I see them 
racing around in that large tureen of soup in front of me and I can't quite grasp at the letters in the right order and there must be something neurological about that. So I shall from henceforth call it my neurological soup. But I do my best nonetheless to pronounce the right word. Etymology, the roots of words that travel down into the soil across space and time through layers of history if you think of history as being something like archaeology silted layers of earth deposited by those who came before us words like relics like remnants underneath the ground and so I associate them with tree roots that travel far under too, carrying minerals back and forth between tree and tree. And we now know that is in fact what trees do, the secret life of trees Richard Maybe, I think, wrote that book, and he told us, he told me it was a great revelation to know that trees pass back and forth minerals. They share, they are generous, they operate as a cooperative. They pass minerals back and forth underground, a kind of secret ministry, as Coleridge would say, a secret ministry of underground root resourcing, the secret network. So amen to the tree and amen to that sensation of slinking into trees and slinking into heaven. trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still, the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, 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 the trees, they say. Begin afresh, 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 the trees, they say. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey.
Produced by Andrew Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.